This podcast is hosted by Chris Finkston and Spencer Oliver. They are both experienced paramedics. They've done everything from 911 ground ambulance to volunteer fire department work and are both currently flight paramedics. This podcast reviews scenarios based on real calls run by real out-of-hospital clinicians. Details are changed to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. This podcast is EMS 2020. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of EMS 2020. The pause is now a thing, and so now I feel like I can't stop doing it. Anyway, welcome to EMS 2020. On this show, we like to uh, review EMS calls and tell you what we would do differently, if anything. And yeah, my name is Chris, and that is Spencer. Spencer, how you doing? I am great. Phenomenal, even. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we do have a lot of good reasons to feel phenomenal today. We have a bit of an announcement. Um, For those of you that don't already, please follow us on social media. We are on Facebook at EMS 20 slash 20. Unless you're Spencer, then you'll fuck it up and just say EMS 2020. Uh, Yeah, I will. (laughs) We're on uh, EMS 2020 show on Instagram. And if you want to send us an email about a call that you were on, send that email to EMS 2020 podcast at gmail.com. And I want to let you guys know, we appreciate all the emails we have been getting. We are doing our best to work our way through as many of them as possible. And uh, we do try. We do try to get to all of them. And we're actually decently successful at it. And uh, yeah, we just want to appreciate, uh, just want to show some appreciation uh, for you guys. One of the things that Spencer and I have been continually asked about, probably since we started this show, but more so recently, and that is CE. Can people get CE for listening to our podcast? And you guys have wanted to do that for a while. Well, the truth behind that is that there's an accreditation process that goes into it and it costs money to get your stuff uh, accredited so that people can get uh, CE. As you guys know, EMS 2020 currently costs zero dollars to listen to. So we make it actually costs us money to do the show already. Um, Yeah. But one of the things that Spencer and I have maintained on this is one of the biggest things we like about doing this is that we get to share information. We don't charge anybody anything for the information. And we like that. It's something that's accessible to anyone, whether you're an EMS responder or not, although far and away almost all of you guys are um and we love doing that and so there have been some suggestions out there people suggested we do like a patreon page or something where we could charge for ces and it's not that you know we were against that on its face but you know we were kind of worried about you know degrading the free product that really that we love to do and our announcement today is this you guys will soon very soon be able to get CE for listening to EMS 2020 and it will cost you nothing at all. Uh, I mean, I might request that you send us beer occasionally (laughs) still, but you guys are uh, already doing that. So (laughs) (laughs) that's actually pretty good, but no, that's a, that's a huge deal for Spencer and I. So yeah, if you guys already listen to the podcast and you're a responder and need to get your uh, continuing education credits, uh, guess what? Very soon you guys will be able to head over to www.guardiancme.com and actually get CE just for listening. And it will cost you absolutely nothing. It's going to be 100% free. And it was just kind of the perfect fit. As you guys know, we've worked with Dr. Chris Seitz before on this show. He owns Guardian Test Prep, which is a test prep program to help you pass your NREMT. It's the same program that I took to recently pass my NREMT. They were formerly called Sites and Sirens. They are now Guardian Test Prep. But if you go to www.guardiancme.com, we'll have a link, of course, on all of our social media. There is going to be an email list 
lists that you can sign up for so that you can be notified the moment that this is live. And I don't have an accurate ETA for you guys on when it's going to be live, um, but soon. And yeah, it's uh, it's awesome. I'm actually really excited about being able to do it. And again, it's 100% free. It'll cost you nothing. So if you've already listened to a podcast of ours and you're like, oh, what if I go get CE for that? You would go over to guardiancme.com when everything is ready to go. There will be a test to take. You take the test, you get your CME and that's it. Yeah. And hours, hours of CME, because right. uh, as you know, we are long winded and we don't put out <laughs> oh, yeah. really short episodes. No half credit uh, shit except here. For like, yeah. Except for like the one where I was like, oh, Spencer's not here because he's doing things. Yeah. Like that was so that, that one you will not get credit for. <laughs> um, sorry. Yeah. So what we will do is uh, we will go back through the shows and as CE becomes available uh, for and we're going to be doing our previous catalog, too. It's not just new content, although new content will, of course, also be accredited uh, as well. But as shows become accredited, we will go ahead and note that in the show description. It'll be right up front. So as you're scrolling back through iTunes or whatever podcast catcher you use, you will see, you know, the CE hours available for that. And you'll be able to do that. Or probably easiest just be would be to go over to guardiancme.com and find it there. Um, so, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, please. Head on over to guardiancme.com and get on that email list. That really helps us uh, with starting this program and getting it launched. It lets us know exactly what the demand and needs are out there. And that's really important to us to get signed up on that email list uh, to get this thing started. So, yeah, let's get you guys some free CME for just listening. Yeah. And Ooh. speaking of listening, uh, <clears throat> we have some listener comments, questions uh, regarding our previous episode, flying or lying. Yeah. Um, you several guys people, love that episode, by the way. Holy crap. Was that one popular? I mean. Yeah. Truth. Yeah. I mean, they're all popular. Like, I love all my children, but, you know. But that one's that the, one you love better. I, no, I get uh, it. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> no, um, a lot of. <laughs> so a lot of emails uh, were essentially asking us, uh, hey, like, is it possible that this child, the patient in that call, had a condition called congenital insen congenital insensitivity to pain, uh, which is essentially like it, it's a genetic disorder in which uh, patients, often young children, uh, they do not have the development to uh, recognize painful stimulus. Right. Um, it, it's it. It's just incredibly, incredibly rare. Um, and it usually has, uh, it actually has a pretty high mortality associated with it because, you know, pain is the best educator. Uh, and if you take away pain, it turns out that people will do things like, you know, just touch burning stuff without recognizing that they're still doing damage. You know, it's not, this condition is not like the gold star in Mario where you just like go run through the level and wow. Yeah, um, it's actually like you feel like you have the gold star, but your body goes like, oh, no, it burns and things like this of this nature will still damage the tissue. And just for a little bit of context, the patient in that episode uh, had a mechanism of injury that should absolutely be eliciting a painful response, but they did not seem to be bothered by it. So that's why this came up. Yeah, um, here's what I say about that. It, it, it's possible it's exceedingly unlikely, just given how rare this sure, is. Absolutely. Um, 
and you know, like, and recognizing that patients can have an expressions of like discomfort or, you know, whatever in, in a multitude of ways. It, so it, it's possible, but I just, I don't know. I think it's unlikely. There may be more sure. medical history that we could establish, um, you know, that, that might kind of shore that up. But in the end, ultimately, we don't get to know. I think the well, best thing to walk away from is just understanding that sometimes uh, people will be in pain and maybe not be expressing it in a way that jives with how we ex- like how we right. would expect them to express pain. I would actually say it's fairly unlikely this was a CIP patient. And my main logic for that is that what we do know from the history is that the, the kid did not want to walk and was kind of flexing when they were palpated, which those can to me indicate perceptions of pain and, and painful responses. So, I mean, again, we weren't there, but um, because the kid uh, did not have any loss of sensation and was technically able to walk, my guess is that walking was avoided because of a perception of pain. So I would I would probably tend to err on the side of um, not a CIP patient based on that. But anyway, so there we go. uh, That's a fun rabbit hole to uh, fall into. Uh, So, you know, Wikipedia CIP and, uh, you know, (laughs) see where it goes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go into today's story. Let's do it. Today's call, uh, which I've decided will be called EMS 2020's Take on a Series of Unfortunate Events, uh, <laughs> is brought to us by Violet, an advanced EMT for her service. Uh, they have been in that position for about two years with one year before that uh, as an EMT. Uh, she's going to be the most senior employee on the shift that she's covering. Uh, and for today's call, they are working with several other partners whom I will introduce now. And I would like to point out here on EMS 2020, we make up all of these names. So if you are a new listener to the show and you don't know that this person's name is not actually violent and is uh, violent, violent <laughs> person's name is violent. Um <laughs> I'm going to guess. Uh, now, here's the thing. I have never seen or read a series of unfortunate events, but I'm going to guess that these characters names are somewhat uh, based on that. Uh, yes. Yes, they are. So, again, we have Violent Violet, uh, an advanced CMT and the lead responder of this system. Next is Klaus, a student advanced EMT and the wheelman for this call. Oh, nice. Uh, F- followed by uh, Lemony. I feel like we're doing uh, an a EMT. bank robbery now. <laughs> it's like, ooh, do we go heist? Do we go a series of unfortunate events? Yeah, a little bit. And then uh, the fourth member of the crew, a CPR-only responder, I'm dubbing Sonny. Is this four responders in one rig? Oh, yes. Yes, it is. Okay. That's uh, and, that's a little bit packed. That's good. Yeah, it's a, it's a jam-packed episode. Nice. Uh, yeah. So today's nicknames, as we stated above, they're based on uh, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, uh, which I also haven't read. And I will admit, <laughs> I've seen some of the episodes on Netflix. Not all of them. Some of them. But this is, this the- is where we're getting to when it comes to nicknames. We're naming shit off of our desk and that Netflix show we watched that one time. That's yeah. yeah. But it's popular. There you go. Probably. Yeah. Um, and it has, uh, oh God, uh, Neil Patrick Harris in it. So boom. Oh, well, there stuff. you go. Shoot. Watch yeah. it. 
But anyway, based until on it turns what out he's a seen, horrible person, do some scandal that comes out, then stop. But in the meantime, watch it. Yeah, well, you know, the thoughts and prayers that that doesn't happen. Uh, <laughs> so, the little I've seen, little I know about this call, or from everything I know about this call, it seems super appropriate to go ahead and tie these together. And, I'm and excited. For those, for those who haven't seen it or read the books and are driving and don't want to like Wikipedia the plot, it's essentially about orphan kids trying to evade a murderous character who wants to steal their inheritance and then off them. And uh, he that that character, the bad guy, finds increasingly elaborate ways and disguises to like sabotage their lives from book to book. Um, so, yeah. And that cute, bad character's name is Count Olaf. Yeah. Mm, remember that. Anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, hey, real quick. Should we do a quick breakdown of the differences between like an EMT and an advanced EMT? Uh, yeah, it's probably worthwhile doing. Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, as some of the listeners here are going to know, uh, you have four primary different levels of responder. You have the EMR, emergency medical responder, the EMT, the advanced EMT, and then the paramedic. And the main difference is, is this. Uh, an EMT is primarily trained in life support techniques that are non-invasive. So for example, medications that go in through like an IV, for example, are gonna be without, uh, are gonna be outside of the scope of practice of an EMT. Even placing an IV, is typically outside of the scope of practice of an EMT. Now, there are different municipalities out there that may add or modify this as they see fit. That's totally plausible, but we're going by the national standards here. An advanced EMT typically has a few more tools in the toolbox added to what an EMT can do. For example, they can start IVs, they can give certain IV medications, they can do certain airway things, depending on where you are, that maybe an EMT could not do. So that's kind of the uh, the cliff notes of the differences there. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so uh, before I move on, credit to the author, Daniel Handler, uh, for creating the work of fiction that uh, we are just shoddily referencing and stealing. So boom. perfect. And probably <laughs> ruining right. to some extent. And probably ruining. Yes. Uh, so let's shift over to the system that this cast of characters is working in. Um, so right off the bat, it's a very interesting system. And I'm admittedly going to be a little vague about it um, because this is a unique college-based service that provides intensive on-the-job training and responds to the community needs. Uh, it's staffed essentially by college students and some alumni. Most of the providers are ad advanced EMTs or below with their manager as being the paramedic who could wow. additionally respond from their, like during their office hours, like Monday through Friday. Yeah. My um, input on this system is zero because I've never heard of anything like it. So this is, this is interesting. There are many of these across the country, Interesting, um, but I, I'm going to be vague again. I'm just, it's a different, it's a, it's a far different, like unique system to what I uh, am familiar with. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to give out too many identifying features because we do try and respect confidentiality yeah, and whatnot. So a cool feature of the system is that they will fund uh, paramedic training for some, um, uh, like for some of their employees. And as I'm still paying the student loans for my own paramedic school, <laughs> fucking decades ago, uh, this actually seems like a really awesome idea. Uh, nice. So more about the system. There's two ambulances that could be available to respond, but usually due to like school staffing issues, um, it, usually one is available to go out. Um, and typically the crew runs like eight calls in a 24 hour shift. Uh, 
in this area, their service area, there is a level one hospital um, that they do transport to, which does almost all the things. Uh, I think the one thing that they don't do is burns, which will get transferred out to a burn center after being stabilized. But otherwise, uh, this is the place to go. And this ambulance service uh, area for the system covers some nearby towns, and those towns tend to rely on volunteer fire services to cover that sort of like first response thing while the crews get out there. So um, I think that covers everything that the audience needs to know for covering this call in regards to the system. Questions? No, I think we have enough. Perfect. All right. Well, then let's get on to the call. I want to do like a narrator voice or something, you know, like just like, and then there we were <laughs> when our story opens. Jesus. All right. It's, it's 200201 on a cold winter evening. Violet and her crew have just been tapped from their station to respond to a small volunteer only EMS town, uh, which I had mentioned in the previous section for a thirties female reportedly having an asthma attack. The team depart their station and drive code three towards the town where the call is. Um, they don't recall the initial conversation they had while en route because about 10 minutes into the response, a static filled panicky radio transmission from one of the volunteers on scene seems to update that this is a cardiac arrest call. Um, and so after checking with dispatch to confirm that this is in fact, like what is happening. Hey, are they really dispatch, dead? Dispatch like, yeah, they like, sound totally dead. Uh, well, dispatch basically goes like, I think that's what they said. So yeah, I would go with, I would go with what they said over the radio. Uh, Violet knows that for a time they might be the highest level provider responding and like recognize that this will be their call to run. So she assigns her team their roles to take up when they arrive to the scene. Violet will take up the role of PIC. Klaus will be in charge of the monitor and obtaining vacu vascular access. Lemony will be assigned to airway and Sunny the CPR only person will be assigned to cracking the chest, using the rib spreaders and performing <laughs> an appropriate cardiac massage, uh, which, as we all wow. know, deep tissue Swedish. Uh, hopefully this will Jeez. all work out. And after the massage, the patient will sign a refusal and simply be advised to like, hey, drink plenty of water to flush out those toxins. Uh, you know, I <laughs> I. We talk about pregame and that's a hell of a pregame. I'm going to say that's, uh, you know, jumping right into interthoracic surgery, uh, which is somehow mixed into like naturopathic care uh, by the time we get to the end of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I oof. Uh, I, I would say that maybe more like Thai passive stretch massage may be better in this situation oh, yeah? instead of. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, Frank Starling law, right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you think about it, because Frank's telling you that, that's the one where like the more stretch you have, the more rebound of the of the tissue, right? So yeah, it's what? Oh God, what is it like? Is you get like the more blood you get, the more stretch it does. The, right. The more clearing you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. God the, damn it. Like, all right. So, so, so here's the practical, the real application of Frank Starling law, and what that is is so you got a heart, right? If you, if the heart 
basically fills with enough volume and expands X amount, it will also contract in proportion to that expansion. So the more expansion, the more contraction you get, which would increase cardiac output. So there are some treatments that are based on Frank Starling law. And that is why I say Thai passive stretch massage. Yep. Okay. I, <laughs> I, you know what? I stand corrected. I I thought I I thought deep tissue Swedish was the best joke, and uh, you fucking one up me. So here we go. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So the crew ar- arrive, and uh, you know what? Hold on. I because now I can't let them go. Like I wonder, dude. Uh, if there are correct, like cardiothoracic surgeons that like compare their massage techniques <laughs> like, right. with each other, like one guy's in the OR like doing it, and the other card like this, the other surgeon is just kind of standing by like making judgy as fuck like comments, yeah, like uh, like huh? So uh, that's how you do this, huh? You know, uh, I find that uh, by extending the pinky out a little bit and uh, using what. Uh, Oh, uh, I call the Dr. Robinson's apple hold. Uh, hey, get a lot better results. But you know what? Uh, you do you. And the other doctor's like, you want me to do your apple hold? Um, because as a result, I would have my thumb on the apex instead of palming the posterior. Yeah, that's, you know what? That's the kind of novice shit a student does. Oh, yeah. And then Dr. Robinson would have to be like, uh, well, uh, your wife wasn't complaining when I massaged her last night. And then the other doctor would have to be like, the other doctor would be like, shr- like shrug. Well, uh, yeah, dead patients uh, don't complain about the shitty care, uh, shitty substandard uh, care they receive there, Bob. So- nice. <laughs> that's, uh, I want that to happen. I hope that's a thing that happens. If you're a cardiothoracic surgeon, can, can you like email us and just be like, yeah, that's if you're a cardiothoracic surgeon, you're probably not listening to this show, but that's you know, yeah. maybe I I had my bowl of Wheaties today. I'm feeling good about us. That, that's true. Anyway. All right. All right. So I digress. Anyway, let's go back to the call. So the ambulance arrives to the scene and what a scene it is. The location of this call is at a mobile home park in the town. And it's just a chaotic mess on arrival. Like there are several police officers present on scene. All the blinky lights are going. There's like 10 firefighters, most of which are like donned in full like PPE, um, except for what turns out like the two providers actually doing patient care. One of whom is an advanced EMT from the department who's performing CPR and the other uh, Violet recognizes is an EMT who is situated at the head of the patient. This call does occur in COVID times. So PPE would be the expected standard, but there's more. The patient is being coded outside and is noted to be laying in a snowbank with her legs basically sort of like folded under her. Um, hold so, your comments, though, because we're not done yet. R- r- really quick. Yeah. I-, I know you said hold your comments, and I'm just like, oh, fuck that rule. Um, but <laughs> Except for you. Everyone so, else holds their comments. You get a pass. Perfect. Well, there's only two of us, so... I'm kind of I'm kind of both of those categories. I'm both me and everyone else. But anyway, so... I want to maybe further clarify the position she's in. Is this just kind of like, like she was playing limbo, like trying to get under that bar, but then like lost her balance and is now sitting on her own legs kind of thing. Like Mm, I I am not based on how I imagine it. It's like, imagine somebody walking out into the snowbank and then just like collapsing, falling backwards, but their legs are still kind of stuck where they were because they're in some snow. And so like, 
they collapse and their legs just end up kind of like bent under so like her under butt, the legs. So like her butt cheeks are on top of her feet right now. Yeah, her butt cheeks would be on top of her okay. feet. Okay. So limbo like not, Yeah, like we're not talking like men in black like folded in half. Okay. Uh, wow. And like tucked into a Boy, that's an old movie. I don't think it, did people recognize like would people recognize that anymore? I don't know. I think what was that like the 90s when they came out? Oof. Yeah. I don't know. I have no idea. All right, All anyway, right. moving on. Yeah, there it is. The patient is described as a 30s female uh, with an average build wearing jeans and a t-shirt. Um, and I'm assuming the t-shirt was pulled up because there's a monitor near the patient in AED mode and the defib pads are described as being placed on the patient's lower abdomen. Uh, Side note, the monitor shows a systole, but also doesn't because the crew, none of the crew members are uh, permitted to interpret a rhythm. Okay. But a flat line is flat line is pretty telling. So it's like, yeah, it's assistly, but like, you know, wink, wink, not assistly. They can see that the sky is blue, but someone's saying you, you're not allowed to observe the color blue. Gotcha. So exactly. So, um, the Uh, patient is clarifying point. The pads are on the patient's lower abdomen. Yes. So the pads are wrong. I mean, maybe for you. (laughs) Right. Well, okay. For everybody, sick maybe Spencer. I'm going to point that out. But yeah. Okay. So pads are on the patient's lower abdomen. And just for those uh, listening, if you're you're not clear on this point, this is a good point to be clear on. Your pads are either going to be anterior or posterior, where it's front and back, which is kind of the latest uh, trend. Uh, Or they're going to be one on one side of the lower thorax, on usually the left lower thorax and the upper right thorax is kind of where they're typically placed. So... Mm-hmm. not on the lower abdomen. Yeah. You kind of want like the heart near the pads. And um, unless the patient's heart is like actually down in their abdomen, um, <laughs> you, you want the heart in between the pads is what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so, you know, uh, like unless this is a confirmed case of like, uh, this patient has their heart in their abdomen, which I've never heard of. Um, probably should go with the standard placement. Anyway. Right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely should. Right. So the patient is noted to have an NPA in their nose, but the patient's head is noted to be turned to the side, like all the way to the side. And the EMT on airway, who I'm calling Captain J. Sham, reports that the patient's jaw is clenched. Violet also notes that Captain J. Sham really just sort of appears to be holding the BVM, like sort of near the patient's mouth as they aggressively attempt to deliver breaths. So they are not getting that seal. Okay, Chris, so uh, this is the scene. How would the greatest paramedic to ever grace this earth want to handle this situation from here? Okay, so so basically I'm a paramedic and I walk into this? Yeah, like okay. what would you what would you want to do right away? What would be your priorities? All right, well, as the greatest paramedic to ever grace the earth, I'm kidding. Um, so I, I think when it comes to any complicated call, my main priority is going to be first off is to uh, – establish PIC, which in this case is going to be me because I would be the paramedic on scene, the only paramedic on scene. Um, so I think the first thing is going to be like, all right, establish PIC and then try and calmly take over, but assertively take over and start to fix some of the problems we've already identified. Uh, and really quick, like I, I would also wonder, like, do we need to move this patient from where they're at? We've talked about that early on. You need to, you got to run a scene in a good position. And if someone's in a snowbank, I don't know how good of compressions you could be getting like in the snowbank. So it might be wise to move the patient. I don't know. I'm not there. Uh, yeah. We need to move the AED pads to the correct spot. 
Uh, we need to actually bag this patient instead of aggressively bagging their face with air. Uh, and then maybe start working on uh, an HPI and figure out where we got uh, to where we are. Uh, but at this point, also, like, it's a code. We also need vascular access. And I've got some AEMTs who can probably accomplish that for me. So I'd start assigning roles like that. Let's get some vascular access so we can move forward with the code. Okay. So, it, you know, co come in and calmly fix this by, you know, moving the patient if they need to be moved. Uh right. Yeah, and just sort of unfucking everything, fixing it, the pads, getting yeah. access. Yeah. Here's what gotcha. I'd say. When you go into run a code, the biggest thing right off the bat, and, and don't get me wrong, you definitely need to start getting an HPI so you can figure out what happened so we can start going down like our H's and T's. HPI, by the way, is history of present illness. And the big thing, though, when it comes to running a code, HPI is important, but regardless of the HPI that you get, you're going to start this code the exact same way every single time, right? So... HPI is is what's going to happen after I lay the foundations for running a good code. And I like to get past the complicated shit first. Okay, we've got our compressor set up. Awesome. Can we do good, compre good compressions? No? Okay, well then move them. Put the AED pads in the right spot. Awesome. Let's get that airway addressed. And I think in this case, uh, you know, throw in an OPA or maybe an SGA, depending on how, you know, trained and quick we are, and just get the airway kind of out of the way. Uh, and then start getting vascular access. Because once you get those pillars of getting a code done, we're getting code mm -hmm. ready. You're set because most codes and you and I have talked about this before. Most codes don't go wrong because somebody forgot what to do. Most codes go wrong because of logistics. Like I can't get an IV. I can't get an airway. These kind of things, because that will hold yeah. up those code 99 algorithms. For those that aren't aware, we have algorithms that we follow when it comes to not having a pulse. And it's usually it's just basically it's a. It's a timing, it's kind of a cadence of when we start giving medications and those kind of things. So if you don't have vascular access to give medications, it throws off the whole cadence. So what I would do is I would immediately either get an IV or an IO after we address the compressions, pads, airway. Anyway, and then Perfect. we start working on HPI. Yeah. So Violet describes initially sort of feeling very overwhelmed by this scene and like seeing those identified errors taking place. So she and her crew come in, and the first thing she does is sort of like, hey, was this a witnessed arrest? And Captain J. Sham responds like, eh, kind of. And Violet, again, feeling the stress here, reports that they yelled back like, hey, hey that's a yes or no question. <laughs> and, right. Cap and Captain J. Sham on the airway responds like, uh, okay, uh, yes. <laughs> and they give a quick report. So he arrived to the scene and found her down but breathing, and then, like, she stopped breathing, so they started CPR. Uh, they called for help. They've done six cycles of CPR with an AD, and all cycles are advising no shocks. Shocking. Sorry, no, no, no. I said was... no shock advised, <laughs> buddy. No shock. Yeah. That was a bad joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> I should hire better writers. <laughs> you really should. <laughs> uh, so that's the report. Uh, you know, and then, so Violet then gets to work trying to fix this scene. So she quickly jumps in and places AED plaids in the appropriate spot, which, as Chris pointed out, on the chest. Um, and as her crew, like, they grab a backboard that they brought over, and Good. after a log roll, the patient is now on a backboard, which this also has the happy outcome of getting the patient's leg out from under her own body, and turns out, like, get the head in a more inline position and not turn to the side. Um, and also gives them a firmer surface on which to do CPR. So yeah. um, the volunteer advanced EMT who is doing CPR, and I'm calling Stefano, is nice. switched out with Sonny, who, for the record, 
uh, elected to go with the standard AHA CPR instead of the cardiac massage, which, uh, you know, as Chris pointed out, <laughs> would have been the wrong style anyway. So, by the way, I just, I just imagine someone doing CPR in the snow, on the soft snow, and then somebody be like, hey, put the backboard under her so we can do better CPR. It's like, no, I'm just going to pack the snow down a little bit more by just cranking on the sternum. <laughs> good hard pack under <laughs> I mean, there. We're good. I mean, you know, which would probably work. happen eventually, but <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think it would. Yeah, but you know what? Let's let's make all the compressions count. Yeah, it's like, well, for the first while, the compressions didn't count. Those were our snowpack compressions. Now, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you know, worst case scenario, you put them on a backboard, you start doing compressions, and they like start like sliding, sliding. down the slope. <laughs> Like, oh, they're uh, tobogganing down to their happy destiny. Well, if the ER is at the bottom of the hill, (laughs) frankly, it's just thinking outside the box. (laughs) Someone just yells, open the doors. (laughs) Oh, fuck. All right. Well, I've uh, seen cool runnings. This could work out. (laughs) CPR is restarted. BVMing is happening, uh, and it's now more effective. Violet did ask Captain J. Sham, like, hey, whether or not, like, the patient's on oxygen, and uh, now that the airway's, you know, again, in a better position, and easily, o- and by the way, now easily opens the jaw, that is. Uh, mm. Captain J. Sham lists the O2 bottle next to them in response. So, they look over to the cardiac monitor, and it shows that the patient is actually in a systole, although, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we don't know that. Right. With those new properly placed pads, Stefano, now freed up from their compressor job, is instructed to get an I.O. for vascular access, and they do get a humeral head I.O. Uh, Violet, while that's happening, Violet jumps in to do their own assessment of the airway because, you know, they're right there. And her assessment of the patient's airway is that it's edematous and red. Um, so edematous being swollen and red. Uh, they're able to drop a, an appropriately sized eye gel into the patient's mouth to deliver ventilations. Uh, Violet asks about an ALS response and realizes that none has been added yet. So they radio in for any available paramedics to respond to the scene because they are concerned that the airway might swell shut while they work this call. But for now, ventilation is happening with the eye gel. While all that is taking place, one of the crew people check a CBG or BGL uh, per their protocol. And that comes back at 50 milligrams per deciliter or for the international folks, 2.77 millimoles. Oh, that's interesting. So that is low. Yeah. So with that humoral IO in place, Stefano pushes uh, essentially a like 250 mil bag of D10 into the patient and uh, they also are able to get in a milligram of 1 to 10,000 epi. And just so you know, for timing's sake now, we're probably about 10 minutes into the okay. code from when Violet arrived and about 20 or so from the time of arrest. I'll also point out that while that CBG is low, it doesn't have anything to do with why this patient coded. I would be, I would put all my paychecks on that. It's just yeah. it's just an observation I'm making. I'm not being like, aha, mm-hmm. give oh, her an d 50 <laughs> I I would like to discuss with you after this call that oh, particular move. Okay. But in the meantime, onward we go. So Violet tries to get a history, but no one really seems to know anything. There is some speculation that drugs may be involved. And I believe this arose from like the peanut gallery of police and other providers, um, if I'm remembering the uh, story correctly. Yeah. Um, so they do trial like two milligrams of Narcan. Yeah, let's see if it works. Uh, it doesn't, by the way. Okay. Right <laughs> gotcha. Uh, so... 
With all those tasks seemingly caught up now, Violet realizes that it's only getting colder and that the patient really should be moved out of the snow and into their ambulance ASAP. But before I go into this fun little part of the story, I just kind of want to color in a little more of the call for you all. And here's why you might be imagining based on how I've been sort of summarizing these events and the treatments that have been done that Violet is sort of like swept in and saved the day. And you Mm -hmm. might think that the two providers on scene, Captain J. Sham and Stefano, are glad to have her there and have been following her requests as PIC. But that really hasn't been the case. Oh, Violet describes being frustrated with the responses to her requests and that they just don't seem to want to follow them. Um, yeah, so far, nothing's been really overt. It's just been more of a like passive resistance, but Violet's noticed. And by the way, like it really, th- that passive resistance is the shittier of the two. Like overt right, refusal is. is easy to address. Oh yeah. But passive resistance where someone just sort of doesn't do the thing, but they don't voice any like reason not to, they just don't. That That's worse in my mind because it's harder to address. It's a lot more like, oh, hold on. What? Like, did you not hear me? What's going on here? I um, absolutely agree. Yeah. And so Violet speculated, um, looking back, considering like this might've been like an age related thing mm-hmm. uh, because the two volunteers are substantially older than Violet and her crew. Okay. But really, but really, like, regardless of the cause, it's a dynamic in play. So that's why we brought it up. So anyway, back to the call. Recall that Violet wanted to get the patient out of this snowy and only getting colder environment. And so she announces, hey, like on the next analyze, we're moving the patient to the ambulance. And the crew from her ambulance acknowledged the request and sort of like encircle the backboard in their spots, like preparing to lift. Gotcha. But Stefano and Captain Sham don't appear to acknowledge this. Granted, like people are busy and one of those one of those members is doing CPR. So it's sure. possible that they might have heard and just not acknowledged it. Um, and you can't so, really stop anyway. Like even if you do exactly. hear it, you're not going to be like, okay, I'm going to stop compressions now. Like you have exactly. to keep going. Yeah. So they continue on until the next analyze period. And as announced, Violet issues the like, okay, hey, let's move the patient instruction. But nothing happens because Stefano and Captain Jasham just don't do anything. They don't jump in to help lift. Uh, The AED is analyzing and Violet's crew is like looking at her with what I can only assume is he like, why, why isn't the thing happening? Yeah. Um, That look. Yeah. So Violet says this about the next moment. (laughs) She says, I'd actually just listen to your episode about like how it's okay to stand up and say like, Hey, I'm in charge when people are kind of doing their own thing. So I did. And it worked. Yes, exactly. I have said this time and time again. It's yes. You establish yourself as PIC. You kind of force that recognition to be that information conduit. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Are you- but they also said that at this time, the mutual aid paramedic that they had requested had just arrived. And like, as they're giving this instruction, basically like walked up behind them and was like, oh, yeah, uh, let's move to the ambulance. Great idea. And then everyone listened. So, you know, who knows? Nope, we know. It, she followed my advice, and that is what saved the day. <laughs> yep, that's, that's, that's totally it. it. Yep. Yep. Uh, yep. <clears throat> All right. So there it is. But hey, again, the good news is that there is now a paramedic and their advanced EMT uh, ambulance partner who are now there from their service 
and they are ready to jump in and help. And the patient is going to get moved out of the snow and into the ambulance. All things that are good. Before they move the patient, an end-tidal CO2 device is placed on the eye gel, and it reveals an end-tidal CO2 of... Da-da-da! 80s! Well, well, I mean, it it fits. Yeah, and given the high end-tidal CO2, a pulse is checked, and the patient has a pulse. Awesome! So, finally, a series of fortunate events is taking place. And it's only bound to get better from here on out, right? Yeah. How, how could this go worse? I, 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 you know what? Oh. Fuck. <laughs> oh, you sweet, sweet summer child. <laughs> you have no idea. Oh, but I do because I do this show. That's <laughs> the bad news doesn't take long to come. So as they're carrying the patient over to the ambulance, Violet spots the familiar sealed coil of an unused oxygen line laying on the patient's chest yes. with one end of that line connected to the very BVM that Captain J-Sham has been using to Isn't ventilate the patient. Isn't this the, the same guy that held up the oxygen tank when at yep. what? Yep. It is. Proceed. And we'll, yep. All right. Fuck. So Violet realizes at that moment that the patient likely then has not been on O2 for the entirety of the call so far. And, and that's a fucking this point, problem. We're approaching that 30 minute mark. Oh, man. So the patient is loaded into Violet's ambulance and immediately put on some O2. Uh, side note here, the paramedic and their partner will be riding in with Violet's ambulance uh, as this call takes place in their service area. Um, so essentially what they're going to do is they're just going to grab some kits and just jump into that ambulance and ride in. So okay. that's how that works. So here's the arrangement. Uh, the Klaus will be driving everyone to the hospital, the paramedic and their AEMT. The AEMT I'm naming Fernald. Okay. <laughs> will be riding in. Uh, Violet, Lemony, who then recall that Lemony's the EMT, and Sunny, uh, that's the CPR cardiac massagist, uh, they are in the back as well. So, they're, this is a loaded to the brim ambulance. There's like five providers back there. You have the paramedic, you have Fernald, who's their advanced EMT partner. You have Violet, who's an advanced EMT, Lemony, the EMT, and our cardiac masseuse, Sunny. That's a lot of people. This is loaded yeah. over. So Lemony takes over BVMing once in the back. That empty uh, bag of D10 is switched out for a 500 milliliter bag of normal state. Uh, normal saline. Normal saline. Yeah. And that starts at, I, dude, I have a hard time not saying normal saline. Like, that's just like, cause I just enjoy it. It flows so much better. It's fun. It's like normal saline and then normal saline. It just flows. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the patient is fully placed on the monitor and the heat is turned on full blast in the rig. And the first set of vitals come in as they are departing. We have a heart rate in the 170s. The rhythm dis is described as a rhythm that isn't a systole and has an accompanying pulse. So awesome. Okay. Yeah. The SpO2 comes back at 77% with a good sawtooth plough wave. Okay. The end title remains in the 80s. Uh, with the iGel and the BP is not obtained, but it is cycled on that monitor often. Okay. So per Chris, perfect. 
Good. Next steps on the call. If this was you, because now there is a paramedic. And so like, what would you want to do for your paramedic care? Well, I mean, by all means, just keep hitting the shit out of that BP button. That's the main thing. Dude, I'm all over it until it gives us a number we want. Uh, No. So we've got to start transitioning into resuscitation, right? Because that's kind of the important part here. We got a pulse back. That's great. We need to keep that pulse there. Uh, So a couple things right off the bat that I would always make sure is check lung sounds. Uh, I don't know if they were checked earlier and I just missed it, but I don't recall hearing them being checked. Mm -mm. Uh, so especially when you have an eye gel place, start checking lung sounds. I'm not a huge fan of an SpO2 of 77% on this patient. So we need to be cranking the oxygen uh, through that BBM and getting this patient as much oxygen as possible. Uh, and for fuck's sake, just oscillate a, a blood pressure palp one. Just get one. Don't keep hitting the button because <laughs> uh, a blood pressure is really going to guide upcoming, you know, post-resuscitation yeah. treatments, especially if you have a low blood pressure and you start thinking about fluid impressors and those kind of things. Um, <clears throat> so you need to get a BP, um, which may indicate more fluids on board. Uh, a core temp if you can. Um, and then maybe yeah. consider like warm fluids and rewarming the patient if they, cause they are out in the snow. So that could be part of I me mean, if we're thinking our H's and T's hypothermia could be part of it. Um, mm. I don't think yeah. hypothermia is what got this patient. I imagine there was a preceding event that caused them to be stuck in said snow and unable to get out of the snow, whether they arrested or or what. Uh, but yeah, and then we're going to have to start thinking of, well, she's in a systole, so we wouldn't be hanging in antidysrhythmic at this point. So I wouldn't really yeah. worry about that. Um, so yeah, the, but yeah, we really need to focus on the good resuscitation here. My primary concern is going to be the, that low SAO2 and hopefully getting a blood pressure sooner or later uh, because when we don't do good recess stuff, good recess work, that's where people rearrest. Sometimes they re- they rearrest even if you do great recess work. It's you know, but yeah. anyway, it's so, a tumultuous time for the patient. It so, is. Yeah. So we got to yeah. we got to we got to be on a recess game. Absolutely. Well, uh, unfortunately, the patient's heart rate quickly drops from the one seventies range just down into the fifties, and Ooh. the patient loses pulses again. Yep. So CPR is restarted, and then a note is made. Uh, the patient's humeral IO doesn't appear to be working anymore. Oh. And so on inspection, um, everyone sort of collectively ponders as to whether or not the IO might in fact be a little too anterior to where it should be. Okay. Um, it's speculative, uh, but ultimately like either way, it's not working. And so they're not going to use it uh, okay. anymore, period. Mm. Uh, so a tibial one is a st- is placed by Fernald, who then pushes another amp of epi as CPR continues. So we'll do a couple rhythm checks later with good CPR, good you know BVMing, and the patient and on oxygen, uh, and the patient does get a pulse back, but for whatever reason, Fernald didn't hear this, and without communicating to the group, they ended up pushing another amp of epi. Uh, well, the like well, Rosk was achieved, but uh, that's a thing that everyone will kind of put together a little later. What Violet knows at this moment is, hey, like, okay, we got Rosk back once again. But what the paramedic who totally isn't Count Olaf in this in, in like an elaborate disguise focuses on next throws Violet off. They ask Violet, "Do you think I should intubate this patient?" Hmm. Violet, not hmm. at all anticipating this, like responds like, um, I, if that's what your protocols say to do, then yeah. I, I, like, I don't know. I um, mean, that's it, a weird thing to say because 
intubation is out of most AEMT's scope of practices. So mm-hmm. it, it's yeah. kind of strange for someone who where it, it's in their scope of practice to ask someone who really isn't trained to consider it if they should do it or not. Now, given I'm, I'm not saying don't take input from your fellow providers. A lot of other providers are knowledgeable about things outside of their scope and have experience with it. Totally. Um, anyway, so that, that'll be interesting. I guess let's let's see how this goes. All right. So Violet responds like, yeah, if that's in your protocols, like if your protocols say to do it, but to Violet's knowledge, like only patients in cardiac or respiratory arrest can be intubated, uh, which, you know, does apply here. She's like, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. You, you, you tell me if you would, right. you should do it here. Uh, so totally not Olaf in disguise decides to go ahead with this move and intubate. So Chris, what are your thoughts? Like what? What would what would want what would you want to like switch out an SGA for an ET? I don't in this patient. I don't know. So it could be a good thing. I think what may be driving this decision is seeing the low SAO two and believing that an ET tube is a better airway than an SGA, which in in some situation it situations it will be, mm-hmm. um, but kind of. I guess maybe that's the part they're kind of blaming for the uh, for the low the low sat reading. Um, before switching out this airway, I would be addressing three things. I'd address its placement by listening to uh, lung sounds and obviously yeah. observing end tidal, which they have positive end tidal, so I'm decently certain this is placed well. Um, yeah. And then second thing I would do is I would. Basically, I'd probably bag a little bit. I mean, they're, I'm assuming they're on high flow oxygen now, at least. Of course, I made that assumption earlier, too, when the guy weighed the oxygen tank at him. So, but anyway, uh, yeah. basically ensure that. Oh, here's another thing. When you need to oxygenate somebody, don't set it to 15 liters per minute. Set it to as high as it will go. So if you have that 25 mark or it just says flush, set it to that. 15 liters mm. per minute is 80% FIO. It's, it's, I think it's a 60 to 80% FIO2 via non-rebreather mask. It's probably a little bit more through an airway device, but still, as high as it will go. Um, yeah. There's no reason not to when there's 77%. Anyway, so I'd make sure that my FIO2 is up as high as it can be, and then I'd, I'd add PEEP, and that's how I address the oxygenation. The only way I'd swap it out is if I had a reason to believe there's something wrong with the eye gel, but replacing the eye gel with a tube, I don't think would necessarily correct this situation. But anyway, that's where I'm at. All right. Yeah. So, okay. So it's fair. There, there is some plausibility to switching this out. Uh, you know, right. I, but I need more information. Yeah. And, and exactly. And we don't have that information because we didn't get the story from that paramedic. So we don't get to know kind of what they were seeing. Um, yeah. that, so I, I'm reluctant to judge on this decision itself, but uh, we're going to get judgy as fuck in a moment. So, you know, here we go. Hell yeah. That's what we do. <laughs> That's right. So what happens next isn't good. Uh, and Violet says the following, like, hey, this was the first time in two years that I'd seen anyone intubate. So I didn't feel really comfortable questioning uh, the paramedic right. who is totally not Count Olaf. Um, but from the description uh, that I got, no one would no one would walk away from this event going like, man, that boy who totally isn't Count Olaf in disguise just nailed this. Like, <laughs> it's it's. Yeah. So here's what we know and we were able to put together. And granted, there's going to be some details missing. Uh, the medic put together their equipment, which is a DL scope that got an ET tube out. We don't know like the size or even if they use like a bougie or stylet or like, I don't know, maybe nothing. I've seen yeah. people do that before. Uh, like, DL, by the way, this. 
DLL is, yeah, that stands for direct laryngoscopy, and that's versus like VL, which is video laryngoscopy. Direct laryngoscopy just means you have a device that opens the person's mouth so you can look down and see the trachea, which is your target. Video laryngoscopy is a device that has a camera on the end, so you see it through a camera and you guide on a monitor. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't know the any prep work they took beyond that. So they pulled essentially what they did was they pulled the eye gel out and went in with their DL scope and immediately said, like, wow, I can't see anything. And then, like, placed a tube. Then afterwards, they attached the end tidal CO2 to the tube and Violet watched as it precipitously dropped from 60 down to zero and from there to the sub-basement of fault line. And right about that moment, uh, and by the way, there's an EMT who's being, that EMT, um, Lemony, is being instructed to, like, bag through all of this as that end title's dropping. Uh, and so as they do that, uh, vomit fills the tube and Yay. just erupts from the top of the BVM and out the exhalation port, just showering everything. Oh, uh, good gravy. Because that tube went o- straight to the stomach. Yeah. Yeah. So Count Olaf then turned to Violet and asked, like, should I pull the tube? Yes. At that, it's like you were there. Violet said the same thing. Like, yeah, I think that would be a good choice. Um, yeah, because you know yeah. where vomit comes from? The stomach. You know where vomit doesn't come from? The lungs. You know where the tube should be? In the lungs. And don't get me wrong. You can definitely pack pack some lungs full of vomit. That can happen. But it's normally not the explosive eruption that that is. So when you get mm. that shit, that means you're in there. Because what's been happening the entire time the patient was bagged? I mean, shittily, but bagged prior to getting an SGA in there, some of that air has been going into the lungs. So you have essentially a pressurized vomit vessel, now known as the stomach, that you then put a, a tube in. All that's going to yeah. come right out the tube. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Moving but, on. You know, like, I, I think you're sort of being like, is it speciest? You know, like, maybe this is the kind of human who has their heart in their stomach and whose lungs uh, like hold the vomit? Like you, uh, you don't know, know Chris. My bad, my bad. I, I should, you know, you 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 place those pads over the stomach. Do you do that? All right. And then you I will. and then you intubate it too, because that's where their lungs are going to be. If their heart was in the, maybe we're going about this all wrong. Maybe the heart was in the <laughs> abdomen, and so are the lungs. Maybe they're reversed. <laughs> Some people have heart and lungs protected by their rib cage. No, 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 not this person. Yep. Backwards. Yeah. Uh, but assuming the standard physiology of, you know, humans, uh, applies to this human patient as well. Uh, yeah. Removing the ET tube from, from the esophagus is a good choice. So, uh, they do that. And of course the patient now is again in cardiac arrest. And so CPR is restarted. Uh, they all agree uh, to place another eye gel and Olaf goes to grab the discarded eye gel, which is on the floor of the rig. Uh, Violet, seeing this and fearing what Olaf might do with that device, grabs a fresh one for, uh, for them and the freshy gets placed instead of the flory. So, oh, the flory. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So the remainder of the transport is basically just continued CPR with no further events. Oh, except that this is the point where they learned that the third and final, which is per the protocol, dose of epi had already been given earlier when the patient had briefly re- gotten Rosk back. So wait a second. They have a limit on how much epi they can give even during a code? Yep. They get three doses and then it's done. That is... St- 
that is a departure from just about mm-hmm. every Code 99 protocol that I know of. Yeah, well, we'll touch on some other departures here in a moment, but yes, but that is okay. the limiting for their system here. Uh, so they cannot go further um, unless they wanted to contact online medical control, and that didn't happen. On arrival to the ED, the patient did get ROSC once more uh, shortly after they arrived, but ultimately they did succumb to their injuries. Um, as you can imagine, during, given the series of events that did take place, this call was reviewed by the medical director oh, yeah. and uh, with responders and from lawyers. the fire and the volunteers from the fire service, along with Violet and her crew. And I will touch on some of that during our bigger in-depth review. But essentially, here's what Violet learned about the patients, uh, about the patient. Uh, the patient's head CT did show that she likely suffered an anoxic brain injury. Uh, she was also found to be profoundly acidotic and she was hypothermic, none of which should surprise anyone. Um, there is also the belief that drugs were involved, um, but we don't know which ones or to the extent of which they would factor into the call. Again, I'll, I'll dispense a little more uh, details as we get into the talking points, but otherwise, this is the call. Yeah, and that is that is a heck of a call. So uh, I'm going to try and, and summarize this um, Fuster Cluck of a call. Uh, <laughs> so maybe that'll be the title for this week's episode, Fuster Cluck. Uh, but anyway, uh, so dispatched to a 30-something-year-old uh, asthma attack uh, in an adjacent town. They arrived to find a very poorly ran code being worked. Uh, steps were taken to unfuck the call. Uh but there was a strange power dynamic that seemed to be a play that really complicated that with people just not doing what the qualified person, the most qualified person on scene was asking them to do. Then, uh, right when we thought that things were about to get better, like a paramedic arrives and we got Rosk, we're out of the snow, uh, things do not get better. In fact, they get uh, the opposite of better, which let me Google that really quick. Ah, things get worse. Uh, so, oh, patient, yeah. yeah. Patient, uh, turns out, was never on oxygen in spite of a responder on scene waving an oxygen bottle at the other person. Yeah. The I.O. also may have been poorly placed. That's a possibility, Maybe. too. Uh, yeah. And the patient, you know, like, rearrest, you know, given that <laughs> given two very important things weren't functioning. So uh, yeah. then they get the patient in the back and the medic decides to change out the eye gel for an E.T. tube with little clinical reason. And uh Yeah. The patient arrests again, and then ultimately the patient dies. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's where we're at. And 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 Violet commented that they were just really frustrated that they weren't able to get the patient out of the snow faster and that the patient was wasn't actually on O2 uh, and just just how all the things played out, really. Like it was just like there was like, man, there are all these things that just made this call so hard. Uh, most of which we'll talk about. So, but let's move into your first thoughts for the call. Good, bad. Okay. All that stuff. So let's hear it. Yeah. So good. Um, they did get the patient out of the snow. They got the patient to the hospital. And 
That's good. So, <laughs> so actually, uh, anyway, no, that that's not entirely true. I do want to point out there are a couple things that were done right here. I really did like Violet's, uh, you know, declaration of her being the PIC. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, not just because it's my advice, but it is good advice. And oftentimes it does work. And I'm going to go with that being the reason why people paid attention, not because the paramedic uh, rolled up on scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I do kind of like, yes, the IO failed, but one of the things I appreciate is like, you know what? That means that somebody was constantly reassessing it because here's the thing, folks, things are going to break. Things are not going to work. You're going to find out the things you thought were working, aren't actually working and haven't been working. That's fine. What you don't want to do is roll into an ER and be like, yeah, we gave, you know, four rounds of epinephrine and the doc's like, yeah, you gave them four rounds of epi, uh, you know, into their knee joint because you put an IO there instead of where it needed to be. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to commend. It's like, you know, because here's the thing. Mistakes happen. How you respond to, to mistakes is what makes you a good or bad provider. Uh, you're not going to go through this career without making mistakes or finding other people's mistakes. It's going to happen, period. It's how you respond to those things. And so I'm going to give some kudos there. You know what? Yeah, it was a poorly placed IO, but that means somebody was watching. Somebody was paying attention and we fixed the problem. So that's that's actually a good thing uh, right there. So the bad. I'm going to start mm-hmm. off. What's that? I said, mm. yeah, yeah, this is going to be a longer list. Uh, I'm going to start off with a couple things. I'm going to start off right away with kind of that interaction between the other responders and Violet and them just not following what she's doing. I, I will tell you this. There is no scenario in which flat ignoring or silent treatmenting somebody or waving an oxygen bottle at them uh, is appropriate. There's no scenario where that kind of attitude towards the PIC helps. If you have a disagreement or you think something should be wrong, like Spencer said, the better option is to vocalize that. Because here's the thing. We've said it time and time again. Being a PIC is not about being right. It's about being a conduit for information. That's all you are. You are an information router, right? You take in data and you disperse it. And if someone comes back and says, hey, I think your data is wrong, then you consider that. But that person needs to clearly say what they think is wrong and represent their concerns clinically. We've talked about it time and time again in this show and happened again here. And when you don't do that correctly, one, it's disrespectful. Because here's the thing. If you're a good provider, you should be able to take clinical data in, even if it means that you're wrong. Okay. Uh, Yeah. But it's disrespectful. It doesn't get things done. And it really sets a, a pretty poor tone. If you've got some secret you're keeping as to why you think the person's wrong, don't keep it a fucking secret. Say it. All right. Rant yeah. over. Spencer, what did you oh, notice? I, to me, my, my impression of this call is, is like the idea of medicine is easy. It's easy to recognize like, oh, hey, this is a cardiac arrest algorithm. Truth. We need to follow it. Like this gets I mean, this is what you train on a, a lot of the time is this type of call. Um, mm-hmm. But the execution is hard. Um, it is yeah, hard. Like there's a there's an operational reality where you're like, I have this idea of how this will work. And now I need to apply it to this. Well, and that's and what we talked about. Oh, good. Yeah. And and then that's when you discover like. Oh, except that, like, there were reasons, you know, whatever reason, like, this was done wrong, and this happens, and then, like, oh, and now there's a snowbank, and the, it, there's all these factors that, that until you kind of hit the road, you just, you don't know how hard the job can be. Well, um, 
and, and, yeah. and, th- and that's why we say what we say. And that is that a lot of codes don't go wrong because someone forgot the algorithm. They go exactly. wrong for logistical reasons. Yeah. Um, I, I think this is a, I, I think Violet is a person who really tried to like recognized the idea of medicine, the idea of like how this should be run wasn't being met and really struggled to try and fix that. And it's good that she recognized that. And it's disappointing to some degree that like the other providers didn't seem to recognize that. Um, And you're right. We weren't there. There are communication and perceived instructions and all of that. Like there, there may be some aspect at play or whatever, but I I stand by, I, I totally wholeheartedly jump on your point, which is like, then if you disagree, say so. Don't right. just like quietly like move the Lego your Legos back over to your side of the room. <laughs> and, you know, like you can't play with these anymore. So let's let's dive in into the the nitty gritty here. Uh, what I've done. It, this is a heavy episode and it's a heavy call. Uh, so I'm going to break this up into a series of unfortunate parts uh, for us to discuss. I'm really getting a lot of mileage out of this series of unfortunate events. And right, I'm you are. Yeah, <laughs> here we go. So um, let's talk about like their in route arrival aspect of this call. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a great game plan. They, tr- she tried to mitigate a, bunch of potential chaos by like having people know what they're supposed to do before they show up. And that is a great way to like reduce the stress, that initial front loaded stress of like showing up and then going like, Oh, okay. Uh, shit. Now I need to put you people places. It's like, if everyone already knows what kind of what their role should be, then like they'll go towards that. Um, and so yeah. I think that's a great thing to do like right off the bat. That's excellent pre-gaming. I, I 100% agree. We've talked about the pregame. The pregame is really important, but it is worth pointing out, though, that a lot of pregame plans will change once you actually arrive on scene, especially if you're the second in crew, because there could already be a PIC or a plan in place and they've done their own pregame. So what you've assigned yeah. somebody else to do may be taken over by somebody else. So be prepared to change that. Um, but yeah, walking with a, with a preplan is is always, always preferable. Uh, Chris, here's a question for you, buddy. Um, is, do you think, is it worth offering PIC to like one of the providers already on scene who's sort of been there? You know, like you show up and there's the advanced EMT doing CPR with the EMT doing, you know, the ventilating. And, you know, is it like, hey, will you be PIC given that like you've been here, you've established longer, you know, like, do you think that's worthwhile? Oof. Um, Gosh, I, I don't know. This is kind of the way that I address that. I walk in and be like, uh, hey, guys, unless one of you guys want to be PIC, I can go ahead and be PIC. And I drop it like that because Ooh, nice. the reason I like to drop it like that is because if you walk in, it's like, well, so do you want to be PIC? And they're not really sure if they want to be PIC. Then you can end up mm. engaging in a wasteful conversation of, well, OK, well, who wants to be it? You know, that kind of stuff. So to me, it's kind of like. You walk in and you throw it out there because that way, if they intended on being PIC, that's their opportunity to be yeah. like, yeah, I can be PIC. Do you want to come take over bagging? Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah. Then you go take over bagging. Uh, but in this case, if you know, and it also gives them the opportunity to acknowledge that you are now that you are the captain now. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> nice. Yeah, uh, I, I would also I think I'd also be hesitant, like if I showed up and there's like pads on the abdomen and the BVM isn't actually like I this is I I don't know if I really would like I don't know if I want to turn it over to those that crew and like and that's 
maybe that's unfair. I, you know, like where I'm, I'm like, I don't know what happened here, what led to this, but like it, it, my brain immediately goes like, uh, this happened because these two players like didn't correct it and didn't mm-hmm. identify it. I don't know if I could trust them yet going forward, uh, to run the code, but you know, maybe mm-hmm. that's, maybe that's prejudgment, uh, prejudgment. Sure. Judgmental of me, whatever. So, yeah. um, how do you feel about the initial steps that Violet took on arrival? Like, are there things that you would have done differently? Um, possibly. So one of the things that I, that I would point out. So when, when Violet got on scene, uh, she did ask some questions and she kind of started jumping on like, kind of like the, what happened, uh, mm-hmm. sort of thing a little bit sooner than I would for me. Like I said, at the start, once I recognize something is a code, what happened does not matter in the first five minutes of getting a code established. It doesn't. All you really yeah. care about is what rhythm are they in now? And let's start establishing the pillars of a code. And that's going to be good compressions first and foremost. Pad placement in this case, which is normally not something I have to think about, but this call it is. Um, airway and then IV access or vascular access, be it IV or IO. And then we can start kind of moving on to things. If I'm recalling correctly, I think she jumped on the, hey, what happened kind of thing, uh, train yes. uh, kind of soon. And I think that can actually cause a lot of things to go askew is because we're, we're trying to get the ground under, under our feet, right? Especially if we're not, you know, really experienced and we're kind of overwhelmed. We're trying to grab the ground under our feet. Just tell me everything that happened. You don't need to know right off the bat. You really don't. Give that food that that that's after the first five minutes. So I'd maybe change that. Uh, so, yeah, that is kind of where I'm at. Get the pillars established first, uh, you know, then kind of move on to HPI. A quick question for you. Do you know why there wasn't a paramedic unit uh, added earlier if they were available to mutual aid in this call? Because it came down as a code 99. Why? Or was Upgraded to a code 99. Yes. Um, yeah, but, but it so is upgraded prior to, but that was upgraded prior to Violet getting on scene and requesting a paramedic, correct? Uh, yes. So yeah. I, dude, I'm so glad you brought that up because this is actually a really interesting point and I'll just go into it now. So during the debrief, Violet learns that there was a code run in the town a week prior and it sounded like in that situation, there may have been like no real chance of survivability for the patient. If you like, you know, prolonged downtime, not witnessed, etc. Like, and so in that cardiac arrest call in the town, uh, a medic had been summoned from a different town to respond. And essentially, uh, the code was called. And in that situation, the medic said, like, hey, guys, you don't need a medic to come in for for this. Like, you guys could have called this. And so that mentality actually carried over into this call and was cited as a reason that the paramedic wasn't summoned for the call. So, yeah, this is a little bit odd. So let me get this straight. This is kind of one of those systems where dispatch doesn't automatically put a paramedic on anything. It's up to the other responders to either add one while in route listening to dispatch information or when they get on scene. Correct. That is that's sort of my take on it, because one wasn't automatically added to this call. So Um, and and this is and if that is how the system works, that's kind of a shortcoming because then it leaves responses and how people respond instead of having uniform responses it comes down to the completely subjective opinion of you know whatever responders responding given their level of experience and that kind of seems what happened here right like there's a story about how this one time this one thing happened and it wasn't necessary that has now apparently influenced uh how a community responds to calls and yeah. it's an offshot story. And, and I'm not a huge fan of that. Like, I mean, here's the thing. Like, 
Yeah, if it's like an arrest and there's signs that like this patient's dead, et cetera, et cetera, like then there's some things to be like, look, a paramedic's not going to help make a super dead patient sure. less super dead. You know, like there's that. Yeah. Um, and then the witness arrest versus not witness arrest, like that's that's really important in this case too when you're talking about adding a paramedic. But yeah, I just. I think yeah. this is the problem, though, is a lot of times, especially when it comes to codes, is that you don't know the factors uh, of this code or really the factors of that other code that generated the story in the first place or why apparently we respond differently now. Um, yeah. Or if the medic on that one was even kind of right in their interpretation <laughs> of the information. So, yeah, yeah, I guess my my take on this here is that that's not a great way to base your responses off and that if you are going to leave it up to providers, then you need to have a pretty consistent method of providers, uh, you know, when they add resources to, to things. And quite frankly, if you're going to have a consistent method of when a provider in the field should add a resource, you might as well make it done at the dispatch level, I guess. Because here's the thing is, I, I think it's okay to want to conserve your, your paramedics, but you really got to look at your system and determine, you know, is the benefit, is there benefit in occasionally adding paramedics to things that they don't want to be at or shouldn't be at, not don't want to, but things that they're not useful at, you know, versus, uh, you know, missing things like this, you know, I mean, it's, it's community dependent, but anyway. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I, I think you bring up some really good points, and I sort of this is a this to me does seem like overall to be like a system problem, and I think the you know the the crew the you know volunteer fire crew the EMT and AMT they they were wrong not to, but I kind of uh, this one I hold the system more accountable for because like this is me clearly up like they're gonna be they're, people are gonna make mistakes regardless they're going to miss things. Um, they're not going to recognize like it's, you know, it's, it's very easy to recognize, like to fail to recognize like a patient who is dead versus like a patient who is like salvageably dead. You know, there's, there's some gray in there, but here's the thing. Like, even if they were right, like, even if the, like on that previous call and the paramedic like made the claim, like, yeah, don't, don't call us for this. Like in there's a plausibility like hey there's, you know it's a good reminder that we should really tread carefully like when making comments like hey don't call paramedics for this kind of thing right because like it might seem obvious to him like he shows up and he's like yeah their heads off like i can't fix that why did you call us here but that <laughs> might not be the message that they take away maybe like, that paramedic you know, can't they're fix just going it, like but... yeah all right well uh all right. Well, you know, Chris, as the greatest paramedic in the world, you obviously could. But the rest of us, you know, peons, oof, that's <laughs> we just we go like, yeah, not Chris. Can't do that. Yeah, right. So, exactly. I, so the it's sooner something, you recognize you're not me, the better. The, it really is. Acceptance is the answer. Um, yeah. So what might seem obvious when I'm dispensing advice to somebody like, yeah, don't, don't do this. The reason it might seem obvious to me might not be as obvious to the person that I'm talking to. And so there is that, uh, this sort of like without a system fix, this, this thing will happen again and again. Um, and there we go. Um, so let's transition into that, like scene treatment, um, and then the move into the ambulance. So, you know, they have, 
the pads are fixed, the patient's on a backboard, they've got an IO drilled, and at the time, it seems like it's working because they were able to get some D10 in the thing and uh, and some Epi, and they have an iGel, and help is called. So, Chris, let's talk about that blood sugar in the D10 yeah. during a code. It, you had, you expressed some thoughts. Yeah, so CBGs during a code. Uh, here's the thing. From what I understand, and this has just been like my like casual conversations, I, I'm going to fully admit, I haven't looked this up, uh, but CBGs during chest compressions uh, or codes basically are not accurate and that taking the steps to actually correct the blood sugar uh, has resulted in like poorer outcomes. It, it hasn't really helped anybody. And it's to the point now that like it's not a thing that the AHA recommends anymore checking yeah. and, and correcting. I, I believe it was an H in the, the famous H's and T's at one point in time. It is no longer. Yeah. But way back in the day it was, and it is, it has been removed. I think like the last time it was in any CPR protocol was like the 2005. And I think it was uh, pediatric. Um, there, there's a really good EMS one article that for, like, from 2016 that like brought this up and kind of reviewed the, 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 the data and the studies so far. And it just, it just again sort of reinforces what, it, you know, the body of experts, the AHA have said, which is like, yeah, yeah. this isn't, this isn't helpful. And in fact, g- trying to correct blood sugar tends to lead to poorer outcomes in patients. So, uh, not helping. Um, gotcha. speaking of, speaking of not helping, do you think they should have moved? to the ambulance and out of the snow sooner. Um, Cause recall that there was a good 10 minutes or so where they were just kind of like trying to like fix everything. And then like at the 20 minute mark is when we're really kind of moving the patient out of the snow. Um, You know, it's kind of hard to say without being there. To me, it really depends on how big of a factor was the snow playing in the code. Because when it comes to code 99, the data supports that we should be staying and playing essentially that we should be running the codes uh, on scene instead of just rushing into the back of the ambulance. But if the environment is playing, uh, a fa- you know, is, is a huge issue to the point that it's affecting how well we can run a code, then move based on that. Cause you gotta remember the goal here is what clinical success, good yeah. chest compressions, good ventilation, being able to do interventions. And so if your patient's in an environment where you can't do that, then move them. Uh, yeah. so yeah, it, without being there, you know, it's hard for me to say, yeah, without question, they should move or you no, know, no, they totally should have stayed in play. I, I can't tell you that one way or the other, but that that's kind of to me like, like that's the line is, can I do what I need to do in the spot that I am in? If yes, stay. If no, yeah. go. Yeah. I, I think you bring up a really good point. There is that competing value. Cause we are told, you know, like stay in play, just do CPR because if you, if, if you're trying to like move the patient to the ambulance, then the priority is like, Hey, let's move instead of like, Hey, let's do good CPR. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you're, re- you bring up a really good point. Like if the environment, if you don't think the environment is really like playing a factor, um, like negatively impacting the patient care, then it's probably fine to continue to stay in that spot. If you really do think that like, Hey, we're not really able to do good CPR or like, Hey, we're in a snowbank. It's crowded. We're on an angle, like whatever. Again, there's, there's a lot of things that we just don't know because we weren't there. It, 
then maybe there's an argument to be made about like, hey, let's move. And while we're moving, fuck it, let's just move quickly to the place where we can dedicate ourselves and commit ourselves to the resuscitative, uh, the resuscitation that the patient needs. Understandable point. Yeah. Really quick. I want to touch on the oxygen thing. I I know I've kind of joked about the guy waving the bottle here and there. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. Well, let's talk about it clinically. Uh, that's actually a pretty big miss when it comes to oxygenation. Uh, now, I'm no scientist, um, but what I've been taught over and over again is that hearts do not appreciate a lack of oxygenation. And so trying to run a code, doing CPR, giving medications and all those things, even if you get the heart restarted, bringing it back into an environment where it's not getting properly oxygenated is going to really prime it to rearrest. Right. And so to kind of find, to find out that this patient has not been receiving oxygen therapy for a a significant, a clinically significant uh, duration of the call is pretty disheartening and um, just not great. And so uh, that kind of furthers my disappointment in the response that that I would call it a near sarcastic response of an oxygen bottle wave uh, to the AEMT to Violet who responded um, that makes that worse when it turns out it wasn't connected uh, at all. And yeah. so that, that, and, that's a huge discovery. And, um, yeah. 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 And, and Violet, Violet was kicking themselves for that because they're like, I didn't confirm. I saw the thing. And, and I want to say, like, I would also have made that sort of assumption. And the reason is, is like our, our brains do that. We, you know, especially when we're under stress, we tend to use our like intuitive brain. Uh, a lot more. Um, there's a great book called Thinking Fast and Slow. I'm slowly making my way through it. Um, but one of the things he brought up, like the author brought up in, you know, in psychology is that in that fast thinking system, when our minds are presented with a problem and it's hard, they will actually substitute the harder question for an easier one to answer. And so like, you go like, Hey, are the, is it the patient on oxygen? And what the person has done is essentially like lifted an O2 bottle and your brain goes like, I see oxygen, oxygen's here. And so, and that was the question that got answered instead of like, yeah, but is it connected to the patient? Because most of the time when somebody does that, they are. You're holding up an oxygen bottle to show right. you, like, yeah, if you're I have being oxygen that here. sarcastic about it, you better be right. Because if you're wrong, you look so bad, like yeah. this person ended up being. No, I don't fault Violet one bit in this. Because if what, because what am I going to do? Am I going to critique Violet? Be like, no, you need to go find that oxygen tubing and trace it to either end to make sure it's firmly connected. No, For sure. no, there's a certain line where you got to be like, look, you should be able to ask, hey, is that oxygen connected? And that is the job that now making sure affirmatively making sure it's connected is an important step. But that is not the job of the PIC. We talked about PICs dunking their head underwater. And I don't think you can get more underwater than following a fucking oxygen tube around a scene. So, yeah. I yeah, this is not on violet. In my opinion, correct me if I'm wrong, I wouldn't put this on Violet at all. She yeah. asked a solid question. I mean, as a PIC to ask, hey, is it connected to oxygen? It's a good question because even experienced providers forget that sometimes. It fucking yep. happens. And sometimes the more basic something is, the more often we're going to forget it. But in this case, she asked a question 
someone showed her an oxygen bottle and that should have been enough right there. It's really, you know, I mean, I know we're all in that big thing of like, no, you know, the leader needs to take responsibility for everything. In this case, those guys need to take responsibility for not connecting it, being asked if it was connected and still not checking that they were actually connected. That's on them. Yep. Yep. Okay. Sorry for ranting, but no, um, no, no. I just, I was, I was, I, it was such a, it was such a fun, like, I was like, oh yeah, no, that's a totally a thing that happens and it's automatic. Your brain does that. It just immediately goes like, hey, yeah, no, uh, I'm going to answer this question instead. And uh, yeah, it's fun anyway, yeah. but totally not on her or on any other provider. If yeah, somebody holds up an oxygen tank. Um, right. Cool. So let's it go. It is on into- the dude that holds up the oxygen tank. It's on that person. Yeah. Um- <laughs> when you hold up that oxygen tank, there should be a line dangling off of it. And if there's not... <laughs> Yep. Um, so let's go, unless there's any more scene things that you want to bring up, let's no. go into the ambulance with the Ross. Let's do it. So, so I think, as we talked about, like, they really should have potentially, like, resuscitated more aggressively. And maybe they did, and it just wasn't passed down. But yeah, I, I think, you know, a focus on that, recognizing that those patients are in that sort of danger zone and need resuscitation to try and prevent rearrest. So what um, specific resuscitation effort do you think they I, could have improved I think on? what I would have wanted was I would have wanted a blood pressure. I, I would yes. have gone out of my way to get a blood pressure, get lung sounds, and then start f- like really, really good fluid resuscitation. Because I'm presuming that her blood pressure is probably low. Probably um, should. And you want, yeah. yeah. And then you want the lung sounds to see if like, hey, is lung compliance going to be part of the oxygenation issue? It did serve you know, as an we- asthma attack, correct? It, that is what it was dispatched out as. Yeah. Um, so I'm assuming there is a respiratory component that the patient then called 911 for. We may need bronchodilators at this point. Yeah, and exactly. And so you might need to do the bronchodilation. We'll get into that in just a moment. Um, there's also, of course, the IO that may or may or may not have been bad. I think that was already touched on. There is the med error that did happen. And I, all I really want to say with the med error is like this happens way more often than people realize. Hey, wait, and what the, was the med error? The med error was that the epi was given after the patient had already gotten ROSC back because. Oh, I that, understand. Okay. The. Fernald, Fernald, Fernard, Fernard, whatever the character's name was, uh, ended up just quietly pushing the epi because they thought they were supposed to at that time. Um, they didn't announce it. So nobody had the opportunity to be like, no, 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 don't do that because the patient is now has a pulse. So that medication got pushed despite the fact that the patient had already obtained ROSC. Um, and that's not good. No, it's not. So the way to avoid that is just make sure if your your team calls out medications is that if you you make that a part of your practice, I am going to give this medication now and call it out. Yeah, it comes back to that closed loop communication and part of having a good PIC, because if you have a good PIC in this, your PIC is going to be like, all right, guys, let's go ahead and do this. We're going to go ahead and push epinephrine. Then you should have the other person being like, all right, pushing epinephrine. And it's like, okay, guys, we have ROSC. We're going to do this. And then not pushing epinephrine is part of it. These are the kind of things that crop up when there's not a strong PIC. Someone's on autopilot doing things and the epi gets pushed. Exactly. Right. Um, and then really, the I think the final topic to talk about is the ET. And 
what I will say is there may have been a good reason to pull the ET. Um, it, there may have been. I I yeah. think the strategy is better to if the airway is working and it's oxygenation that is an issue, then do things that improve oxygenation, whether it's increasing the liters per minute, like you said, to increase the FiO2, yeah. or fractured of inspired oxygen, um, whether it's adding bronchodilators, uh, if or the peep. lung sounds, or PEEP, yep. um, to try and get better lung compliance, or, you know, like, if it's push dose epi, um, you know, like, to for bad blood pressure, or for just, you know, like, really swollen airway, uh, mm-hmm. those are all things that potentially could have taken place here and been beneficial and may have helped oxygenation versus the drastic step of taking out one airway and trying to replace it with another. And for the love of God, set yourself up for success. Yeah. Take the time. It really didn't sound like um, <laughs> Count Olaf did th- those steps. And, you know, well, it, it, yeah. And we're getting that from a person who isn't familiar with those tasks. So they may have put more prep work into it, but it really doesn't sound, it sounds like it was a very rushed job Mm -hmm. that had the only outcome that a rushed job can really get you, which is, you know, vomit exploding all over (laughs) everywhere. So that's one of the things to remember about an ET tube here is like, if you have an airway established, like if you have an eye gel, you got to remember the only thing an an ET tube does is it puts a tube in a trachea and blocks it off. So if you have an eye gel that's ventilating correctly, it's probably blocking off that trachea pretty well in and of itself. So if you're still getting poor oxygenation, you really need to start looking at other issues, not just replacing that ET tube. Yeah. And those issues are going to be like PEEP, FiO2, those kind of things. Yeah. There are things you and I talk about too, is like you really should be focusing on trying to get a patient oxygenated before you put a tube in, um, not after. So... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. We, uh, boy, we covered a lot of stuff here. That Um, is a lot. Yeah. So guys, in summary, I, I think the best thing to remember is like, you know, medicine seems easy on paper and it's really kind of hitting the road where we learn all these little things that are just going to mess us up. So, right. A couple of good things. Just remember. The pregame on this one was awesome. I'm glad they did the pregame, uh, especially with their massage types uh, discussed. Um, <laughs> yeah, they have the pregame uh, that was going on. Remember, pregame may change. You know, that could absolutely happen. Um, but yeah, pregame is important. Establishing a PIC is important, and that's what was done. What's also important, though, is actually paying attention to your PIC and not being a dick about things and trying to be passive aggressive. Uh, if you have an issue with something, present it clinically to the person Boom. who is running this call uh, and and talk. Because you could be right, but you could also be wrong. Find out um, either way. Uh, after that, uh, you know, we did talk about CBG. CBGs and codes really aren't that terribly important, uh, mainly because it turns out they're super inaccurate. And oftentimes taking steps to correct low CBGs is not only unnecessary, um, but, you know, it leads to poor outcomes, you know, so there's all that stuff when it comes to staying and playing. Uh, we should be staying when we're running a code, but there are some times where we need to, uh, where we need to move. Basically what it comes down to this, the whole point of staying is so that you can run the code well, but if you can't run the code well in the environment, in the environment you're in and the ambulance is the next closest environment, maybe it's pertinent to go ahead and move to the ambulance. And if you're in the ambulance, 
is it okay to go ahead and start driving? That's going to be, that's going to very call to call, uh, you know, but just consider those options. Stay in play is important, but not necessarily 100% necessary all the time. Uh, in the ambulance, resuscitation, once you get ROSC, really focus on resuscitation and be on point with, you know, really trying to figure out what the pressures are, what the heart rate are, what the oxygenation is, and be aggressive in trying to correct those things to try and avoid that re-arrest situation and call out meds. If you're giving meds, just call them out. Always, always tell people what you're doing. Uh, Well, uh, absolutely. And again, if you have a proper PIC established, the way it should be going is the PIC should be calling for meds and people should be responding with the PIC in charge of the overall call. Uh, And that will help it. You know, don't let people go on autopilot and start doing shit. Uh, So with that, everyone, thanks again for listening to another episode of EMS 2020. If you don't already follow us on social media, we are EMS 20 slash 20 on Facebook, EMS 2020 show uh, on Instagram. And if you would like, please send us an email about your call to EMS 2020 podcast on gmail.com. And of course, keep an eye on www.guardiancme.com. That is where soon you'll be able to get CE credits for listening to EMS 2020, a show that you already listen to and love. Go get some CE for it. It's amazing. It's free. It costs you zero freaking dollars. So go do it. Uh, With that, Spence, take us out awkwardly. I was going to just repeat. Go to (laughs) guardiancme.com and give them your email address. Show your interest. Support the show. Yeah, the email address thing does really help us figure out exactly because we we are doing this, but that is absolutely going to help uh, help uh, guide us uh, making this thing a reality as soon as possible. So please get on the email address. Thank you guys. Bye. That that was Bye. awkward. Perfect. Boom. Great. There's the awkward ending. Oh fuck.